You're listening to The Parting Shot from ADH-TV, the fastest growing alternative media channel in the civilised world. And we're, we're joining you for a week of deep and meaningful conversation, at least from my end anyway, condensed into a crisp, sharp hour. Fred Paul is sitting there in his boardies, his wave-tussled hair nonchalantly draped over his sun-drenched tre- cheeks. I'm Nick Cater. And it's my task, of course, to bring some gravitas to this program, Fred, to, you know, just weight down your harmless banter. <laughs> it's, way, it's my job to bring you down to earth with some laid back commentary, Nick. I'm looking forward to your, your in-depth uh, intellectual discussion with uh, Daisy Cousins later on, but <laughs> I think you want to kick off with something else. Yes, my lesson of the week is that uh, the A in NATO does not stand for Australia. Who knew, Nick, <laughs> that our fearless Prime Minister jetted off to uh, Lithuania to join his uh, WEF and globalist-type friends from Europe to talk about the security of Eastern Europe, which has absolutely nothing to do with Australia, or if it does, it's very indirect, and there are more pressing issues back at home. But uh, he said, uh, our our Prime Minister said, quote, when Australia is at the decision-making table, we get better outcomes for our national security, our people, and our economy. Now, the thing that strikes me, Nick, I think we're going to kick off with an agreement here, is that... Why would Australia, how could Australia care less about all these people, you know, waging war over a a bit of territory in Europe that for centuries has been contested, the borders of which have been uh, elastic, shall we say, for centuries? And, you know, we are, we come from a relatively secure region. We are so prosperous, we have so many resources, we are, we've never been properly invaded. You know, we've had, you know, centuries of peace. Why do we care? Well, the first point to make is I've always felt you have rather a cavalier attitude to the defence of freedom in the face of an autocracy like Russia. Well, we're defending, yes, but we're defending the most corrupt nation in Europe. But you have to agree that we are all pro-NATO now to a man for the very reason that Paul Keating is against NATO. So <laughs> that puts us there. Uh, he did discover the trick of going um, going viral on WeChat and the Global Times history, didn't he, by coming out with the pro-Beijing oh, comment. Yeah, oh, well, that's... shameful, I yeah, thought. He but, is, yeah, uh, he is. But uh, I'm, I'm actually with him. I, I very, very rarely agree with... I think the last time I agreed with Paul Keating uh, would have been... Um, uh, against John Hewson, perhaps. I'm not sure. It's been, it's been a long time. Well, but, you would be. You would yeah. be. But this is a man, of course, who has listened to far too much Mahler. I mean, <laughs> Mahler's right. Third Symphony can really knock you off balance forever. <laughs> and it clearly happened with him, I think. I suspect he's a secret Wagner fan as well, which, of course, is very sus. Well, that that would be. that. Yeah, that puts him in, in very... Uh, um, Conspicuous company uh, but, with fascists, which is my comes to my lesson. Well, of the can week. I before we move on? Can I just quickly add that when uh, when uh, Anthony Albanese very um, enthusiastically embraced um, Volodymyr Zelensky, he also said at the time or, or on social media, he said Australia is sending a strong message that we will push back against states seeking to change the international system. By force. Now that was uh, that was a, 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 an unfortunate turn of phrase mm. for him to use because Australian governments 
are, are seeking to change the property rights of Australians by force. I mean, we keep saying it, that the Calvary Hospital has been forcibly repossessed by the ACT government. Now, not much has changed in that story, so it gets a bit repetitious, but it bears repeating. An Australian government has taken property privately owned by essentially Australian, private Australian interests. And well, I, yeah, I, you say the Australian government, we should point out this is the quasi-communist government of the <laughs> Australian Capital Territory. Yeah, by, by ACTistan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but look, it's a tragic story. I don't, I don't think we've actually, we haven't analysed this or talked about it enough. It, it is just appalling. And the image of that cross being just lifted off by a crane, presumably in, in something they thought they were doing a good thing when they did it. Well, the, it, the, it just the, is chilling, chilling, the, yeah. deeply And chilling. the symbolism uh, was was deliberate, absolutely no doubt about it. The, the other aspect of property rights that I want to mention, and, and uh, I go into some depth about it on my show, as uh, just a reminder to the listeners, most of what we talk about here on this podcast is a uh, recap of stuff that has been featured on ADH, which you can find on ADH.tv or on our app. And that is if Anthony Albanese cared to look out the window as he flew over Western Australia on his way to Europe, he would have noticed um, property rights being seriously compromised uh, right across that state because um, people who have owned farms or anything, any block of land over 1,100 square metres, which uh, actually includes my family, um, he would have seen that uh, nobody can make significant alterations to the property they thought they owned without first consulting an Aboriginal elder. So, you know, it's all well and good for Anthony Albanese to leave our this wide brand la- brown land behind and uh, go and fight the good fight in Europe when the good fight is actually being fought against the government right here in Australia. Because the problem there is which... Aboriginal elders' advice do you seek? As that, that's in that Channel memorable, uh, it, it you know encapsulated the whole blooming problem, didn't it? Where it two yeah. Indigenous chaps uh, from different tribes or whatever are fighting over who has the right to do the smoking ceremony. I, you've got to give credit to the motorway. Channel Seven reporter. Uh, his name was Jeff. Um, oh, his surname escapes my attention at the moment. But the you've you got to give absolute credit to that Channel Seven reporter. He in the middle of that. That, uh, that confected uh, confrontation, he sidled up to the Deputy Premier and said, do you think you've chosen the wrong uh, <laughs> Aboriginal elder Premier or Deputy Premier? It was a very funny moment. Steve Javora over lunch showed me that, uh, a fantastic meme. You might have seen it going around. It's, a, it's of two those two Aboriginal guys plus Jim from Jim's Mowing and <laughs> Jim's, Jim's, Jim's smoking ceremonies. <laughs> oh, anyway, yes. uh, do you want my lesson now or should we get on into this? Let's go to your, your lesson of the week. My lesson is, look, nobody really likes being called a fascist. It's not a nice word. If you don't want to be called a fascist, put some weight on. Bulk up, bulk up, because it's been revealed <laughs> Exclusively, I think, by the American TV station MSNBC LTQI Plus or whatever it's called, yeah. that um, it, exercise, particularly vigorous exercise, is a right-wing plot. It, it's a right-wing gesture, and this is all done by extreme right-wingers. So, obviously, so who are the who are the most right-wing people in Australia then? 
Well, Tony Abbott, obviously, oh, of and course, he, yeah. he's a big exercise guy, of course. Yeah. yeah. So there's number one for you. Yeah, he's he's both a cyclist and a surfer. Tony. Yeah. So I mean, supreme fit, supremely fit for his age. Yeah, and you you are you are uh, not so bad yourself. You are a surfer, so that fits. You're obviously a fascist too, and I guess. <laughs> If I spent a bit more time on the bike, I'd be a fascist too. Well, but, but without giving too much away, to, this is a podcast, it's not a TV broadcast, but uh, from where I'm sitting, Nick, you actually look quite like a communist to me. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I've been cultivating that look. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, but anyway, you wear it well. You how do they well. know? They make this stuff up, don't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway. Well, you can look deeply into this. I mean, the the, the what they are... What, what, what the left is trying to do is undermine everything that makes our civilization what it is. And health is an important part of that. It's a part of being independent and positive and, um, and not reliant on the government to, uh, you know, keep you alive. And, and you know, being, being fat and lazy uh, is tends to be a left-wing um, lifestyle. So. Yeah, I don't think Michael Costa ever wrote the book that he was threatening to write. You know, I'm I'm fat and lazy. What's the government going to do about it? <laughs> but that that's that's the attitude, is. I mean, I think if if I'm not saying it is, but if exercising is seen as a right-wing activity, that's because if you're a conservative, you're taught to take responsibility for your own. Body and your own failings and indeed, you know. and and Nick, you can't. We can't, um, you know, put too fine a point on this. I mean, this is essentially what the COVID lockdown was. Mm. You know, stay at home, don't do exercise. You know, get and, fat and get fat. Yeah, so deplete you know, your vitamin D, the very thing that would help. Exactly. You yeah. COVID. So this is not yeah. some sort of rogue, um, you know, a theory that MSNBC's come up with. It's it's actually fits the narrative. I think this is a left wing clot by MSNBC. Well, and the rest they want. They want people to become more obese because, as we know, obese people were very vulnerable to the COVID virus. So next time they send out their killer virus yep. to deplete populations around the world, yep. they'll know it'd be more effective. We might revisit this when we talk about animals later in the show. So, animals, yeah. Yes. Okay. Anyway, just something more serious and I think quite... Erudite, I think you're going to point to now. Is that right? Yes. Well, it's a grab from your show, uh, which goes out on Thursday nights, uh, the battle, uh, Nick Cater's Battleground, and uh, it's your opening editorial, which, uh, as usual, I found a, a pretty um, uh, persuasive and forceful argument about the uh, religious aspect of environmentalism. Here, here, here's a grab from Nick's editorial. Yet Boeing appears blind to the foolishness of trying to re-engineer our energy system with such flimsy tools. Confronted with the most complex policy challenge of our times, he doesn't exactly behave like a man looking for answers. He seems convinced that he already has them. He behaves, in other words, as the anointed one, with the blinkered self-certainty that characterises the modern technocratical elite, acting out the prevailing vision of our time. Very well put, Nick. Hmm. Well, there was, um, there, I don't know if it's bad news or good news for Boeing this week, but uh, the Naus Group produced a report that said that, yeah, it, it is possible. You can achieve net zero without using nuclear, just using basically the sun and wind alone. It is possible, they said, which would have, you know, bucked his spirits a little bit because there have been a few things going with, wrong with this plan, right? The complete lack of investment and, 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 and the, you know, the, 
half the snowy mountains collapsing when they did because <laughs> of the engineering <laughs> they were trying to do on the, <laughs> that wasn't a good look yes. uh, but, but, you know, the good news is you can get there. Uh, they, they do point out a few things, uh, though. One, the cost of getting there by 2050 to build all the turbines and, and solar panels and transmission lines, every other piece of power from we need, the cost is a cool seven to nine trillion dollars, i.e. about five times our <laughs> GDP. You're not going to find that down, like, down the back of the lounge. No, and, and it, it's, it's going to have to be a lot of land acquisition. Apparently, the amount of land required for this transforming the economy is, I've got the figure here in kilometres, uh, I can't find it now, but I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's essentially half of Victoria. A, a land equivalent of half of Victoria is going to have to be uh, basically requisitioned to build the renewable energy superpower. And because uh, the assumption is all this will just be able to happen, like for the next 27 years, every government that comes in, Labour or Liberals, will be fully committed to this scheme, driving it ahead, and they'll have endless political capital so that when they piss people off by making them drive electric cars or whatever, nobody, you know, they won't, they won't be touched, you can't be touched. So the whole thing is just... Total fantasy, it's, in other words. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen, Chris. Wake up. Wake up. Smell well, the roses. I, the, the reason I liked your editorial was the um, that, you know, other than the, the thorough detail that you went into about the, um, the, the cost of all this was the fact that, you know, we hear it often enough that, that environmentalism is a sort of pagan religion in the absence of of, uh, you know, against the demise of, of traditional religions in Australia, the religions that, that uh, pretty much um, upon which our civilization is based. And the, the question I wanted to put to you, because I put this to, I actually put this to Daisy Cousins during the week, and we'll talk about her again uh, later in the show as well. Um, Daisy Cousins is a new, new addition, full-time addition to uh, the ADH lineup. But I asked her, can, given that the left sees their mission in such a religious framework, can the right, people like you and I, can we effectively fight back against that unless if we don't uh, uh, sort of put it in our own religious context? Yeah, like old-time religion. Um, that's that's exactly the point, yeah. Well, it's a problem for us, isn't it? I mean, but mm. I think we need a narrative, and, and this is what Jordan Peterson's working on. We've got the art conference later this year on this very point. But the the left have got a very good narrative, haven't they, which is essentially, I guess, what a, what the Gospels are. You know, the, 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 they've got a story to tell about, yep. you know, this used to be a terrible, evil – no, no, it used to be a perfect – beautiful world and then humans came along got too clever by half uh started digging up coal and everything turned pear-shaped uh but thanks to these brave and crusading self-sacrificing figures uh, amongst whom they rank uh, they will put this straight it'll and it'll be it'll be a battle but we'll eventually get to that utopia that's their broadly their narrative and we've got to counter that with something because we just Facts don't cut it, right? Like well, I've got right. all these facts in here that you read them and you go, 
well, that's nuts. You mm. can't possibly have an energy policy that's built on such flimsy foundations. Yeah. But none of that cuts through, and it's, it's just like water for ducks back. Exactly, because the, the we aren't putting it in, uh, as you say, the framework of a story. The Generally, the way we fight back against it is with kind of Enlightenment-style reasoning, when in fact we should be uh, appealing to uh, the, you know, the deeper metaphysical um, uh, tr- sort of transcendental um, ideas that that we have to admit uh, that's what uh, environmentalism appeals to. Mm. And, it, you know, when you outline that story, you know, this was a perfect world and then man came along and spoiled it. Oh, well, that's biblical. <laughs> I mean, that is us leaving the Garden yes, of Eden. Yeah, there's so many so many parallels in the narrative. There are, and Because yeah. there's the redemption, you know, we have to sacrifice in yes. order to redeem the world. Um, yeah. You know, like put, you know, give up. Whatever. So that that's their story. We 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 could we could have a much better one. But I think whatever story we have has to say, wait a minute. Actually, humans are important. There's a very misanthropic misanthropic narrative, isn't it? Which humans are the problem and need to be taken away. Like the environment needs to be pristine, kept free from man, because even if that saves the life of one humble earthworm, it's worthwhile, right? That's Indeed. their story. We've got to say, no, no. Humans are at the centre of this, and I think. Um, uh, a lot of people have started fighting back with the narrative that ultimately what we want is human flourishing. We want humans to flourish because if humans don't flourish, nothing flourishes. If we don't have the wealth uh, or the ability to become good environmental stewards, we never will be. If we don't have the wealth to put into technology so we can get rid of that dreadful um, carbon, uh, uh, that dreadful car- carboniferous fuel. Yeah. Yeah. So that that that's a narrative I think. Well, it's what an easy people? one. It, it's an easy one to sell as well because uh, leftism, environmentalism, however, however, however you want to label it, is essentially miserable. I mean, they mm. are not funny. They're not interesting. They're not. They're not optimistic people, and yet we are. So we should be winning the debate. Now, speaking of the debate and free speech, shall we cut to your conversation with former Prime Minister Tony Abbott? Talking mm. about uh, the, um, the the threat of Big Brother becoming a serious reality in Australia. Some faceless bureaucrat will make a decision about what is true and what is false, and based on that, will effectively instruct big tech uh, to uh, to take stuff down or uh, to uh, cancel a whole category of uh, of opinion. And uh, or, or assertion and look, this is um, this really is Big Brother stuff. Just yeah. like the story about uh, Calvary Hospital, this, we can't repeat this often enough. I mean, it, we do sound like a broken record sometimes when we talk about the threat to free speech, Nick. But it's been going on ever since 18C was uh, 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act was uh, enacted in 1995, I think it is. Yeah, and uh, we are increasingly um, that the, the what what Section eighteen C imposed on the Australian people has been gradually and steadily increasing ever since, and now we have the prospect, the very very uh, significant and real prospect of the federal government appointing face as Tony calls them, faceless bureaucrats who will decide what is true and what is not true that can be posted on 
social media. This is really frightening. And this is the this is the fact that Tony Tony nailed it that it is the bureaucrats, and they are the ones who form you know what we sometimes call the deep state. And and I, I you know I'd rather much rather uh, let's say they appointed Chris Bowen as chief censor. You know, even a clown like Bowen, make him chief censor because uh, at least uh, he is accountable to the people. He, ha- he he doesn't survive unless he can get voted back in and he has no influence unless his party gets voted in. So we actually have a, a say in the future of his career, but of course if he's bureaucrats, you don't even know who they are, let alone be able to bring them to account. And that's always, you know, it, it's it, this is the... This is Kafka, isn't it? You it know, is. it's yeah. it's the faceless bureaucrats who make your life hell ultimately. And and uh, Bill Leake and I, um, in his in his last days, we used to often have this argument about whether he was going through an Orwellian nightmare or a Kafkaesque <laughs> nightmare. I uh, one that's driven by this mad, um, you know, tyrant big yep. brother from the top. Yep. Or whether it's a Kafkaesque nightmare in which it's just petty bureaucrats taking too much control. And I went for the Kafkaesque. I think I was right, actually. He preferred the oral <laughs> one. But we saw it, didn't well, we? COVID was that great. Yeah. How, yeah. All these little but just petty tyrants. Before we move off Bill, I mean, that, that's, a, that, that's a good thing to be reminded of because that, that was a bit of a, a sort of milestone in, the, in this descent into a, uh, a censorious dystopia um, just to fill in the background, Bill Leake was the Austra- the cartoonist for the Australian. Most people um, uh, can, will will remember that. He was also a close friend of both uh, Nick and I. And in his last uh, year and a half, I think it was, he was hounded first by the Australian Press Council over yep. a very trivial um, misunderstanding or mis- deliberate misreading of a cartoon. And then the human right, then the the big guns came out, and the Human Rights Commission. Um, went after him over a uh, cartoon um, which famously uh, depicted a, a derelict Indigenous dad not knowing the name of his own son. And uh, the thing about that, the thing about that incident, uh, I'm sure you agree agree with me on this, Nick, is that Bill was the, in my experience, the least racist person. I've ever met. I've never met anyone who was so profoundly egalitarian that, as Bill. He, you know, he mixed with, he could mix with, with you know, royalty and, uh, you know, captains of industry and prime ministers and governors general. But he, you know, in many ways, he preferred the company of ordinary working people. Um, and he, he didn't, he didn't prejudge people. And so for him, as a result of that cartoon, the ABC especially, but social media as well, branded him as a racist. And for Bill, who was so overtly and deliberately and proudly egalitarian and non-judgmental, that would have that would have really cut him to to his heart. And uh, as everyone knows, he died soon afterwards. I woke up. What got bills against anybody in that situation is the process, because it's not a proper legal process. There is not the the, the, the rights uh, that you have of def- that a defendant would have in a normal court. You know, these kangaroo courts, obviously, and and that's what turns human rights commission into an absolute nightmare. So, what turns the press council into a nightmare as well, having dealt with them, is is you don't know what the rules are. They they, they pull all the punches because there are no rules, and they get to decide what's fair or not. And uh, that's. This latest proposal, which would give 
bureaucrats' power to um, give advice to to the tech giants about what they think should be taken down. Of course, the tech giants will take this advice. Well, the Kangaroo collusion court. between yeah, the collusion you're, you're, between big government and big and big tech is yeah. is has has been revealed. Uh, for everyone to see, especially even in Australia. I mean, we thought it was bad in America, but it was equally bad in Australia. Now, look, I need to put, I need to call Tony out on this one, actually, because Tony is quite rightly belling the cat on this. This is a serious incursion onto our what we thought was our birthright, what people have died defending. But Tony's government uh, pulled back. From, from repealing Section 18C in, in 2014, was it? Mm. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm glad Tony is uh, coming out swinging on this matter, but he did have an opportunity to seriously uh, curtail the, um, the incursions into free speech while he was Prime Minister and uh, he reneged. Well, I, as you know, I cut him a fair bit of slack on this, knowing the difficulties he was facing not only in the parliament within his own party at the time and 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 the, the the big battle that was removing 18c was always going to be a challenge uh, and then once the attorney general had, had really not we're going to have him on in a minute i think another yeah. grab from, him, from George, <laughs> what a coincidence yes george, george brandis, brandis yeah. I, and no criticism of george brandis but I, I don't think he approached this the right way so it was all kind of it was a just a stuff up from the start. So I will cut him some slack on that. But I think the point, and he acknowledged this in that podcast, which is actually you can hear on the Menzies Research Centre website. It's a water cooler podcast. He does say in that that, that it is, and this is indisputable, it's very, very hard, if not arguably impossible, to get rid of these clauses once they're put in the law. So we must fight hard to stop that law passing. That's our best hope. If you want to try and undo it later... Good luck with that. Yeah, okay. Well, as uh, as Nick alluded to, one of the reasons why, possibly one of the reasons why Tony was unable to repeal Section 18C was his Attorney General at the time, George Brandis, who, uh, who, who seemed a little bit ambivalent about the idea at the time, or perhaps we can put it that way. But as a coincidence would have it, our next grab is by George Brandis, who was a guest on David Flint's Save the Nation uh, on Thursday night. And uh, um, David asked him, uh, as David always does, asked him about matters um, uh, about the monarchy. And uh, George recalled how well he got to know uh, then Prince, now King Charles, uh, and what King Charles learnt at the knee of his mother, Queen Elizabeth. I think His Majesty the King, who I got to know a lot better, I saw quite a lot of the, the then Prince of Wales uh, when I, I was the High Commissioner, um, uh, has learned uh, from the Master at, uh, at, his, uh, at his mother's knee, as it were, for all those years, and I think is extremely well-placed to assume the role. Now, he'll do it differently because everybody does something differently from their predecessors. But nevertheless, I think uh, King Charles gets... The, the, the centrality of monarchy as an institutional foundation and as something that people can look up to as a unifying national symbol, regardless of the, the fractiousness of the political and social issues of the day. I'm calling BS on that one, Nick. He's not a unifying king. Uh, well, I, 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 I will give George... 
Paul Marks as High Commissioner, he did what I think is the role of every High Commissioner, and that's to uh, offer to take in a stray Australian and offer them some drinks. And he was very hospitable. He was terrific. Uh, did you I, visit I, him while he was in London? Yeah, I yeah. Think we, I've always been... Oh, there's, there's Daisy. She's, well, wait, Daisy, your turn's not come. Uh, so, yeah, no, he was great. I, mean, I think we got through about half a bottle of gin that night. But the, um, uh, yeah, no, I, 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 again, Fred, you're taking a rather sort of populist line on this. Uh, I'm going to go a bit deeper, if you don't want to say so. <laughs> I'll just ride the wave uh, while you <laughs> plumb the depths. I, I, I'm enormously impressed. Uh, you know, I know the dangers. We know what Charles's views are on certain things, but I think nothing but impressed with the way he he took the throne, uh, the seriousness with which he took the coronation. I thought that was a deeply moving ceremony, and and some of the gestures that he did about the speech he gave about serving, terrific. He gets this in theory, uh, and he's going to have an uphill battle. Is wife is not particularly popular with the British public. I mean, I don't mind, but um, mm. they, they seem to. But he has stamped his authority on this in a way that I don't think I would well, have Well, can I and, draw yeah. your attention to what he did two weeks ago with Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, and they launched, what did they call it, the Climate Countdown Clock. I'm not sure if did you did you mm. see them do this? It, it was it sounds was, a little on the woke side. Uh, just a touch <laughs> woke. It counts down the time left to balance global greenhouse gas emissions to prevent the Earth heating more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Now, at the time when they launched it, there we had as a as a species six years and 24 days in order to turn around our emissions. All. Well, well. It's less now. It's six years and ten days, mate. So the clock is ticking. But the mm. thing, the point I'd like to make, I, I, I agree to a point uh, that um, that Charles understands the significance of his role. He wants it to be unifying. He understands the symbolism and the significance. But could there be anything more divisive than saying we've got six years left to to fix the earth? Well, you know, you going back to your point about climate change and religion he, he is he is after all uh, uh what's the role he takes head not head of the church of england but sort of the guardian of the church of england right so so my advice to him is you know stick to old-fashioned old-time religion which he actually did very you know in the, the i thought the structure of the service the liturgy of the of the the very serious liturgy liturgical nature of the uh, the um, coronation, I think, shows that he gets that. So stick to that bit and leave the climate change stuff to people like Chris Bowen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just have one religion. Don't don't dabble yeah. in a in yeah. a variety of yeah. them. Okay. Well, it's talking about another talking about religion. Let's talk about the religion of feminism. I as as I mentioned earlier, Daisy Cousins, who uh, who is a uh, prominent was a prominent uh, commentator on Sky News Australia is now full time. We are very excited to uh, announce now full time here at ADH TV. Her show will be starting possibly as soon as next month, mm. Uh, mm. and uh, mm. more will be revealed uh, closer to the date. But I was lucky enough to uh, have a quick chat with her on my show on Monday night, and uh, I, t I asked her. What made her conservative? And uh, here's her reply. 
mean, I think I've always been naturally conservative. Like ever since I was, I was a teenager, I sort of was very much an individualist, a bit contrarian. I didn't like group projects at school and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I've always been fiscally conservative. And ever since I was a, a little child, I've always been inherently suspicious of popular trends. Like I hated the Spice Girls on principle because everyone else liked them when I was growing up. And because I, 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 you know, I didn't like their music when everyone else did. Uh, for genuine reasons. So I think it's just inherent in my nature. But um, in, a, in addition to that, I, I think conservatives, particularly those who are under 40, they just have an inherent curiosity and an inherent skepticism about things. And I think I became more and more conservative because I realized that things that were being presented to me didn't add up. And that really very much was in the context of feminism above anything else. You know, young women get browbeaten with that in their 20s. I don't think all men are bad. Like, what is this patriarchy? I don't think I've ever been held back by my gender. Just things didn't add up. And so I started researching, you know, inherently curious, uh, you know, came across some different sources, some different commentators. And Fred, I realized um, I'd been lied to. I literally just realized I'd been lied to. And when I realized that I could throw off the shackles of thinking I had to be this big feminist in my 20s, it was the most, I think, one of the most empowering moments of my life when I realized that I was not going to be held back in life because I'm a woman. And that made me furious. Isn't that a great grab? It's fantastic. And, uh, look, first of all, congratulations, Fred, on on signing up Daisy. It's a bit, it's a bit like... Hartlepool United signing Lionel Messi. Yeah. You know, it's a, such a coup for yeah. us as it would be for Hartlepool. Yeah. Um, which which Spice Girl do you think she'd be, by the way, if she was a Spice Girl? Conservative I, Spice? I don't know. But uh, not not sporty. I, I suppose she'd be the the posh one, uh, Victoria Beckham, wouldn't she? Spicy Spice. Spicy Spice. Yeah. Conservative Spice. That's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. No, it's really interesting. I, the left will often criticise. People like Daisy as they like they got this word contrarian, hmm. as if they're just simply being awkward, right? But that's not it. I mean, the instinct to question all the conventional wisdom, to say, "Well, who says?" to look for the evidence to back it up, and only then uh, adopt it. That's that's a, a really healthy instinct, which uh, I adopt. Not it's not exclusive to the right by any means, but right now it seems to be the centre right that's 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 holding itself to that yeah, test, yeah. whereas the left just And that's what makes on. her such an interesting young woman. I mean, but the, the thing about – the thing that you and I can only sort of relate to that from a distance is that, you know, we, we grew up in the era of feminism, so we were indirectly affected by it. You know, the, the, the generation of women that we grew up with – were entirely different to the to the women our, our our dads had to you know court and marry and so on and and so we've had to we've had to adapt to the era of feminism but can you imagine like I mean I don't want to get too down about it or or serious but I mean I think that ge- our generation of women have been really seriously um, uh, badly affected. By feminism, I know I know way too many middle-aged or elderly single women who have who 20, 30 years ago were flying in their careers and immensely happy and free, hmm. and are now miserable because uh, they really did 
um, swallow the uh, the feminist pill. And to hear Daisy talk like that and say they were lying to me, and when I realised that that was the that was one of the most significant moments of my life. I, I find that just extraordinary and mm. it's very emblematic of our time. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think Daisy is a, what she be? I guess she's a, uh, a millennial. Yeah, I think so, yeah. She's, yeah. she's if not a, she wouldn't be Gen Z, would she? Um, I don't no. give her age away. I'd have to <laughs> be guessing anyway. But I, I, so she's of that generation that, that um, as Frank Faridi points out, we'll be hearing from Frank later, They've been very, very badly done when it comes to education and and just general upbringing. You know, this cottonwood ki- cottonwood kids thing is is sometimes used to to throw at millennials to say, well, you you've got to toughen up. You've got to learn how to toughen up. But Frank correctly points out that it, it's the the adult figures in their lives that should be blamed for this because the adults that didn't force them to toughen up, that didn't teach them resilience, and and that's parents. And teachers, so she's right to be disappointed. Yeah, at the education she's received. Yeah, well, let's cut to Frank because he's he's talking on a subject that uh, if you'd said you know we would be discussing this in in a serious yeah. context with a sociologist, if you'd said that ten years ago or even five years ago, you would have gone, oh come on. Yeah, the sub so, the subject being uh, what do we th- what to do with kids. Who identifies cats? Yeah, and okay. wear cat ears and go to school like this. And um, is it okay if they identify a cat to treat them as a cat? So should the school provide kitty litter trays? <laughs> Let's hear from Frank. I think there's also a more disturbing development, something that people haven't really noticed, which is this: once identity and the politicization of identity acquires its own momentum then literally every single uh, aspect of civilized life is put to question. And people used to worry about the fact, and they probably still do, that the biological distinction between man and woman is now regarded as uh, as somehow a prejudice, a bias, uh, that there is in fact uh, no scientific reason apparently to argue that there are only two sexes. Once that becomes mainstream, it's only a matter of time before other boundaries uh, that have been integral to human civilization are also called into question. And I think young children pick up on that. So they don't just simply try it on. They actually believe that it is their right to be whatever they decided to be that particular morning. One of the things about, about growing up as a human being is that most of your most of your life up until the sort of mid twenties, the most the exciting thing about life is discovering new stuff, and what what kids are being encouraged to do now is to actually discover stuff that doesn't even exist. Yeah, I mean, an idea that you know you are you are actually a cat, you know, that would have been treated as a fairly serious indication of mental, mental illness some time ago. So I'm not saying that it is necessarily, but you'd want parents to be alert for the possibility that it might be, you want teachers to be, so that they can have the right treatment and help. Because we don't give them any treatment and help now. It's all affirming, right? We mm. just say, well, if that's what you think you are, uh, we'll give you every there, support. There's a sort of now, a... Con- it, it comes a point where you have to say, you know, tough love or whatever the word is, but 
you're not actually doing kids a favour in the long term. It's not really a good way to sort of enter adulthood, is it? Sort of half cat, half woman. Well, the the, the thing about the difference between a, a modern education and a conservative one is that, as I was saying before, the the a modern education encourages you to use your imagination to to uh, shape the world as you see it. And if that means you're a cat, then that's okay. But a conservative education, so that's, you know, and that's supposedly an exciting way of, of emerging into the world as a young human. But the conservative uh, form of education is far more exciting. Instead of pretending you're a cat, read Shakespeare. I mean, yeah. learn to recite a poem, you know, play piano, uh, become an artist. I mean, the, the potentials, the potential we have as humans is unlimited if we are conditioned in the right direction. But as you say, you know, you, you take all those, you, you break all the borders down and, and what are you left? You're left with kids who have no knowledge of the world, who think that they do know everything and suddenly they're cats. There's a, you know, there's a... Um, Next thing you know, they're energy minister. <laughs> playing, walking on water, that's right. But there is an, there's, a, there's a contradiction in, the, in leftism and that is that the, the um, you know, when, when, uh, when gay rights were the thing, it was because gays are born that way. Mm. And we accepted that, and it's it's essentially true. I mean, there are there is no gay gene, so there is no sort of genuine way of scientific way of affirming, um, you know, a gay predilection. But society has come to accept that it's a real thing, and we thought we'd all move on. But you you know, we, we've gone from you were born this way to oh, you're a cat. I mean, it, it, there's a contradiction there. One does not lead to the other. One has led to the other, but uh, but yeah, they I, don't logically. Yeah, follow. they don't. But the, yeah, isn't the point here, Fred? That yeah, you're right. Like uh, gay rights, as we used to call them, were precisely that. We just wanted them to have equal rights. There's no reason why, just because you. You know, you you get up to different things in your spare time. Yeah, you should have different rights, lesser rights than the rest of the population. Fair enough, we all agree with that. Um, it's a bending. We assume we define what those rights are. Same with women. You know, women's rights. Women should have equal chances, equal opportunity. Same with the civil rights movement in America. And I guess what happened here in the '67 re referendum. There's no reason why, because you come from one racial group, you should have lesser rights. It's all about equal rights. Now we've gone beyond that. Now it's about special rights and and not just uh, accepting difference without comment and just, but actually having to celebrate that difference. Yeah. Particularly in not the you know the, the brave brave kids, you know, stunning and brave kids who hear themselves to be, have the courage to come out. As feline, yeah, but but, but stunning, you know, and, stunning to, and brave to enough to set themselves on a path to misery. That this is get back to the story that you were re referring to before. Mm. The story is that if you want to be happy, you you get yourself a decent education, you get a good job, you get married, you have children, and you buy a house. Any study of of any reasonable study of human happiness will will lead to that same conclusion, but. 
to go to some sort of, uh, you know, postmodern education and emerge thinking you're a cat, well, your, your prospect <laughs> for happiness might, uh, might, might be somewhat diminished. I, I think that's right. We do them no favours whatsoever. Now, the point I put to Frank, and he, he agreed with me, that, that, you know, when I was a, a, a parent, um, when I was first a parent, well over 30 years ago now, uh, I felt that, as you always do, that sense of sort of smug superiority over your, your ancestors, like we weren't going to be like mean Victorian parents, you know, children should be seen and not heard and sent up chimneys. You know, we weren't going to do that. We weren't going to sort of thrash them to win in each of their lives just because they took an apple off the table. So we thought we were going to be the enlightened ones, relaxed, and wanted our kids to be our friends. And my kids called me by my first name uh, and still do, um, mostly. That, that, that we thought we were doing the right thing, but and yet I think collectively – and I was fortunate my kids turned up very well, but much better than I had any right to expect, well, <laughs> given the sort of standard of, of, of parenthood that I put in. But, but we thought, we, I think we, we, have, we have much more to apologise as a, for as a generation than the Victorians or the Edwardians or any, any sort of earlier generation of parents who actually put boundaries in place and discipline and... And I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I I agree, and I look back on my early days as a parent, and and can see very clearly that our generation acted as one. That you know, as long as you loved your kids in a really overt way, everything would be okay. And the yeah, you know, I'm 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 like you. I'm lucky. My kids have turned out to be fine young men, and um and you know, in in large ways because. Uh, you know, like you, I, 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 I kind of, I just led by example. I didn't discipline them much at all and not, neither did any of my peers. And, uh, yeah, they were probably the last generation to scrape through because now the, the kids are being sent off to these indoctrination centres, previously known as schools, and they are, as we've just pointed out, coming out thinking they're, they're cats. Yep, it does go back into the quality of the schools and the the, the seriousness of the teachers running them, I guess. And well, let's end on a on a light note, Nick. And uh, What's just that? To, You're just tell to, me a surfing story. No, just to t- <laughs> just to extrapolate on this uh, on on this topic. If you were if you were a, a fourteen a, a, a sort of um, confused pubescent fourteen year old boy, what sort of uh, animal would you identify with? It's a tough one, Fred. It really, <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. is a tough one. I, I think um, I would want to be a Kelpie. <laughs> I just so much in awe of those animals, you know, and There's their ability. The, they yap. You don't yap, do you? I do sometimes. Oh, okay. But All right. it's just their ability to be f- apply enough firmness to to steer a sheep or even a cow yep. in the right direction, and and. Uh, you know, it's minimum necessary force, you know. Yeah. They, they have a work ethic too. Oh, fantastic. You ever seen them work? Yeah. They, are, they, they are terrific dogs. I actually, I actually met an owner of a Kelpie uh, at the local park the other day mm. and he was really smug. He, he was a really smart dog and we got talking and he said his dog doesn't, doesn't play with other dogs because he thinks he's, he thinks it's superior. You watch, <laughs> you watch dogs at a dog park. You watch Kelpies at a dog park. They don't mix with the other dogs. 
They've got a superiority conference, which you have in common with them, mate. So I, I, kudos for that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was I was working with a uh, my my mate Jock, who's a farmer, and um, uh, he's he has issues as a farmer. Like he he doesn't sort of fix fences when they should be. So we were we're trying to get these sheep into the pen for shearing, and um, they they found a convenient hole through the fence, all through this hole, all over the place. And he got a couple of. Old English shepherd dogs, and they were bloody useless. <laughs> but luckily, the, the the chief shearer had brought in a couple of kelpies with him, and they they rounded these sheep up in no time, so yeah. neatly. Yeah, 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 yeah. The kelpie—that's what I. But if you haven't named your animal, it wouldn't. It'll be a water. Well, animal, I, there, there's a there's a story here actually. Um, when we first met, Nick was at the Adelaide Advertiser, if I'm not mistaken, indeed, yeah. back in the early '90s. Now, and it was a fine broadsheet it was. Fine, when you indeed, and I were yes. And um, when I was there, there was an international conference. I'd only just arrived in Adelaide because I grew up in Perth. Uh, I'd only just arrived, and uh, there was an international conference on. And it was about, it was something to do with animals or the ocean or something. And this visiting English professor delivered a paper that was ostensibly based on the uh, observation that there are, there is only one animal on the planet with the same high brain to weight ratio as humans, and it's dolphins. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I actually tracked him down and I rang him up and said, this is a very interesting theory you have on, on, uh, on humans and dolphins because there's only two species on the planet that surf. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he gave me some very good quotes on, uh, on how, uh, how I was onto, really onto something here that, uh, that actually surfing was a sign of superior intellect and uh, so I can proudly, proudly say that uh, it's one of the few stories that was concurrently run in Australian news in an Australian newspaper and a Californian surf mag. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so there, that's my uh, my animal spirit is uh, dolphin. But I, I will never, never claim to actually be one. So no, no, I don't. You don't look like one for a start. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, you don't look as fit as a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> That's because I'm not a fascist. But uh, I think it's time to wrap this up. Uh, yep. If 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 uh, we'd love to get your feedback, if you have any any praise for this show, send it to Nick Cater at ADH.TV. Any complaints to Fred Paul? <laughs> Fred Paul at ADH.TV. At ADH.TV, and um, it's been. Uh, I think this is a great. Uh, it, a dormant great addition to the ADH rundown, which uh, which is getting very good indeed. And uh, uh, what more to say? Except, oh yes, five stars. You know, you know the drill. Press indeed. five stars and press the bell to subscribe, and you'll never miss a single episode of Parting Shot. Thanks, Nick. See you next week. Thanks, Fred.